Welcome back to the show, friends. Oh my God. We're here in LA, slowly but surely, um, trying to get our fucking lives together. Don't get me wrong, I love hunting for studios where I can touch my bed and the stove at the same time. It's great. Anyway, this week we have Sharin Eskandani on the show. She's a mindfulness mindset manifestation coach based out of New York City. I had the pleasure of connecting with her uh, several years ago now, and she's just someone I really, really look up to. Her parents are also immigrants just like mine. I mean, she she immigrated herself from Iran. Um, when I don't know how old she was, but I believe during her adolescent years. And um, she's just someone who I feel like her and I were dealt similar cards. And I've always looked at her as like a big sister from afar. She's so wise. She's so resilient. Um, she was actually a professional opera singer before she transitioned into her life coaching business. So we talk about that transition. We talk slight. We touch up on um, BIPOC experiences. Her uh, handle on Instagram is Wholehearted Coaching. That's also the name of her coaching business. And I had the pleasure of taking her inner compass course uh, last summer and it was just such a profound experience it was all women and it was just a tool for me and an experience where I was able to kind of name things that I was experiencing or relate to other folks who were maybe experiencing um, things that were similar and just establish community and unlayer certain things within myself so anyway without further ado here is Sharin Eskandani. Welcome to the show, Sharin. Hi, thank you for having me, Aisha. So happy to be here. I am so honored to have you. I admire you so, so much. I can't even tell you. I've told your husband several times how much I admire you. We love you. We love you so, so much, Aisha. The feeling is totally mutual on both our sides. We mm-hmm. admire you and love you so much. I always thought of you as like, I don't know if I ever had the honor or like the pleasure of telling you this, but like I've always viewed you as like a distant older sister. And I feel like it's because like, I I feel that we have such similar um, like traumas in a way. And we'll definitely get into that in the uh, episode, but just like the BIPOC upbringing, you were brought up in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like me in New York. Um, Tell me a little bit about Wholehearted before we dive into all that. Yeah. So uh, the work I do now is mindset and mindfulness coaching. I call it life alchemy, really. And it's about creating gold. And I love how you use the word trauma because I think that we can create gold out of whatever life gives us. Um, it's a process that sometimes seems impossible, mm-hmm. but it but it is. And so for me, um, coaching, when I found coaching, I found it a very um, kind of dark part in my life. I'd done a lot of therapy and I love therapy and I cannot recommend therapy enough to people. Um, however, I found with therapy, um, I had the self-awareness to know where a lot of my habits and like behavior were coming from. Like I could explain the why I could pinpoint the source of it. 
Um, however, I then I wanted the next step. Okay. So like, now what do I do now that I know that this is why I do X, Y, and Z? Um, how do I change and shift that? And so coaching was this beautiful way for me to start really shifting how I was acting in the world and really more how I was, um, being as a person really like for me coaching was really about healing what was going on internally and it completely transformed my life i um you know totally i changed careers i found my partner and uh and it it really became my life's calling to do coaching and i know we're going to talk a little bit about the bipoc experience but one of the things that really um was really difficult for me. And I couldn't name the difficulty at the time because we didn't have the language you use now, but it was that I was like oftentimes the only person of color in a lot of the spaces, the wellness spaces I found myself in. And I was so thirsty for the knowledge that I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll deal with this, whatever. Um, but having to navigate like microaggressions and awkward yes. situations and triggering circumstances. And that's always been one of my missions, uh, since I started my business wholehearted coaching is to make wellness accessible to everyone and to really create, um, a healing space, where everyone feels like this is their space and they belong and that the way that we are talking about this, the work and talking about what's going on is just very inclusive and broad and diverse. And so, yeah, it's a very short way of describing wholehearted coaching, but that's, that's kind of where I am now in the coaching world and how I got to this. I admire so deeply your work. And I just want to take a moment to like talk about the brave. I think it's bravery for you to step into a space as like one of like in the beginning, at least. And I would even still argue now as someone who was like one of the only people of color, like at that time and just, you know, creating this new path for folks who are of color who want to step into this space. You're, um, I view you as like a pioneer in that sense. And even before then, you were an opera singer, right? Yeah. So for 10 plus years, I was, first of all, thank you for that. That's, that's very kind. I don't know if I can like fully claim that, but I, I receive it. Um, but yeah, for 10 plus years, I was an opera singer. And I know both you and I come from an artistic background, which is like, Talk about trying to conform within a field that's I like- I was just about to say that. Yeah. So whitewashed, right? So whitewashed. Um, and yeah, again, like at the time, like looking back now, you're like, oh, wait, that was racist. That was sexist. <laughs> that was misogynistic. But like you just had to suck it up because I think that was also part of the narrative that we were taught was like, this is an unhealthy environment and it's toxic, but like just deal with it, you know? Yep. <laughs> and so- so um, yeah, for 10 plus years navigating that world, which was really toxic in so many ways externally, but also I think toxic internally, because I think, I don't know if you have this experience, but as an artist, as a human, but as an artist, especially, you're not given the tools to, to uh, thrive and be resilient in the face of constant criticism, totally. constant rejection, constant judgment. Like I think within the artistic field, whether you're an actor, a singer, a dancer, you're, you're, it's, it's just a constant, right? And it's, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's at a higher rate that normal people have to deal with it. And the coping mechanisms we're offered 
are not healthy at all. And so I know that for me, like when I found coaching, a, a big thing was that I realized I was an asshole to myself. Like I was so unkind to myself. Like I, you know, that thing where you're like, well, I'll just be critical before they can be critical Mm -hmm. towards me. Mm -hmm. I'll reject myself before they can reject me. And that was seeping into every aspect of my life. And it got to the point where it was just, I had become such a, an inner enemy to myself that, um, I was burnt out. I really, had gotten to a point where I didn't like singing anymore. Um, and I just, you know, so it was just like a really dark place and coaching helped me find like my love again and the joy again in, 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 in the arts, which I had lost for a very long time. And it's like hearing that it's almost fucking demonic. The, the way that, um, whatever energy that was of the lack of compassion, sucking up the constant rejection, judgment, and criticism, it's almost demonic that it ruined at the time that fucking craft for you that stemmed from like your soul. Yeah. It stemmed from a deep place within. It was something within you that just needed to be expressed. Yeah. And I, but I think we lose sight of it, right? When you get caught up in the, the business and the industry and the competition of it all. Um, and also like, it's a, it's unfortunate there, the arts, I, I can't speak for all of them because I don't know them, but I have a feeling they're similar to the, the field I found myself in. They're um, founded by insecure people. And so insecure people create very insecure and toxic environments. Yep. And so, you know what I'm saying? So like, you know, looking back now, I can just see like, oh yeah, totally insecure, totally like unhappy with their lives. And they just spread that and project that around. It's a projection and- cesspool. Yes. 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 It's a projection cesspool shitstorm. It's the craziest thing. And I totally identify with like looking back and being like, you know, now that I have um, the ability, I feel as though I've always had emotional intelligence because I developed it growing up because I had volatile caretakers and that's like what your psyche does to protect itself. But I wasn't able to name the fucked up shit that I saw. And now that you can name it, you can really look back and be like, wow, they just actually hated themselves. Or maybe they were even struggling with jealousy of your abilities of something. Didn't know how to cope with their own jealousy. So they would project it onto you and get in your head. Yeah. I just, I, there's so many reasons, but you know, um, and I think that behavior is unfortunately accepted and normalized then, right? So then the narrative is like, oh, this is supposed to be hard. Oh, they're assholes. Oh, this is this is just what it's like, you know? And and I'm really happy to see that over the past year, a lot of those narratives have been questioned. And yeah, because it's it's not supposed to be like this. It's not. I don't care what fields you're in. Like, totally. you know, like you're not supposed to experience like you know, abuse, like physical, like a mental and emotional kind of abuse from people. Like, yes, it is. Being an artist is difficult, but like the industry makes it 10 times more difficult than it needs to be. You know, when did you realize that your relationship with singing was in the shitter a little bit at that time? I mean, I knew it for a while. I knew it for a while because I would just like I would hate going to practice. Mm-hmm. I would like, I, I could, you know, I was like nitpicking everything I did with, with my voice and with my instrument. And like that thing of, I know a lot of performers can, can resonate with this where like you'd have a good performance, but all you'd fixate on was like the one or two spots you messed up, 
you know, and it just, it was losing its joy. And, um, like my, my kind of rock bottom was also the highest moment of my life. So I, um, I always say this. So my story is that like, I, as an opera singer, the pinnacle is singing at the Metropolitan Opera, right? And that was my dream since I was a little girl. And that dream came true about five years ago. And I got a call from my agent and he was like, Sharin, you know, they want the Metropolitan Opera wants you to sing in Carmen as Mercedes. And that was actually like my dream role. I never wanted to be Carmen. I always wanted to be Mercedes. I'm like, Carmen, that's like a lot of stress to be Carmen. I just want to be Mercedes. So um, I'm like, well, I want to be one of the pips. But um but it was like literally my dream come true. And I'd always like imagine this moment in my life. And I thought, you know, you know, as a young girl, I thought when you get this job, you're going to be so happy. You're going to be like screaming and jumping. It's going to be this great moment. And then as a young woman, you know, when I moved to New York, I would always say like, if I get this job, if I ever get this job at the Met, I'll know I'm a great singer. I'll know I made it. I'll know I'm good enough. And, you know, I got that contract and I realized like, I felt and believed in none of those things. And that's when it hit me where I was like, whoa, like you can get exactly the thing that you want. And I had been waiting. I was like, when I get this, I know I'll be great. But you can get that exact thing externally of what you want and you can feel none of the things you wanted to feel. And that's when I realized I needed to figure out what was going on internally instead of just trying my to make the external change, you know? Totally. That was a big... That was a big wake-up call, Aisha. Huge. That is – I want to take a moment, like a big fucking light to shine on that. That is one of the most life, world, mental model of the world, mental model of yourself rocker that I think anyone can ever experience is like getting what they've always wanted and hating it or getting what thinking that the thing that they got was going to solve x y and z and it just doesn't and it's like i can identify with that because i kind of felt that way with like the fitness industry with like working at mff like um mm. you know it's it's like a it's like a nationally and like kind of like a world renowned gym i was like i'll be so happy once i get you know, this job and blah, blah, blah. And I, I completely identify. It's like, you're at the highest point of your life and you're just fucking miserable. Yeah. And that is really where the real work, um, starts. It's like getting washboard abs and realizing yes. you're still insecure. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, wow, God, you must've went fucking through it with that. <laughs> I did, but I was so grateful for that wake up call. Cause like, you know, sometimes you get the thing you want and you're like, oh, but like if I got like X amount more dollars or if I, you know, if this person was two inches taller, it's like, no, like this was exactly the thing I'd always wanted to manifest. And it was such a big lesson for me. And so I had like a year and a half to prepare for the role. So in, in the opera world, we get a lot of time to get ready. And in that year and a half, you know, most people work on their instrument, which I did. I, I practiced and I, you know, whatever. But what I really fix, fixated on and focused on was like my internal healing. And so it was about like a more an emotional and spiritual journey for me. And um, I was through that journey, I was able to find my joy again. And, you know, to this day, I say my greatest accomplishment wasn't singing at the Met, but it was singing at the Met and like enjoying every part of that process. Wow. Yeah. And like, even when I messed up or things went to the left, like I had become such an inner 
ally. I had become, I had the tools, right, to become resilient, to bounce back. And so it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And I'm so grateful for it. However, at the end of it, I also realized I no longer wanted to be a singer because I had gotten, I I could see clearly, like I always with my clients who want to quit their jobs or leave their whatever's partners or whomever, like it's like, I always ask them, let's first get to a place of either finding your love again or accepting just at least let's get out of the hating and the resenting because whenever we make a decision out of hate or resentment, it's not aligned. And so you're always going to wonder what if you're always going to think you didn't do something you could have done. You're always going to just be holding on to it energetically. And so for me, I got back to that place of love and I could see so clearly that like, I actually didn't want to be in this lifestyle, in this career anymore. Like I love to sing, but I didn't love the career. And yeah. And so that's when I started to, I, you know, went to, uh, did a coaching certification and then slowly, very slowly transitioned from, you know, singing full-time to now coaching full-time. I've never heard of like a, a turnaround that quick of like, I, I, not even with the jobs. Sorry, I should get specific. I mean, with like you having that wake up call and the fact that you weren't like, fuck this or whatever. And you took that year and a half to like do internal work and then enjoy your dream role is so admirable. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I like I'm a very stubborn little person and I'm like when I'm like I'm going to heal, I'm I'm going to heal. Like I'm going to do it. Um but it's a constant I mean if anyone's listening healing is like you know this, it's not linear. It's ups and downs and ebbs and flows. But I you know, you're right. Like I was very grateful that I it, a year and a half is not a lot of time. Um but to get to a place where I could be mentally and emotionally resilient in a pretty like the singing at the Met is it's a very high stress environment. And to be able to do that in that space, like that, you know what, I'm going to pat myself on the back. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Totally. And I also feel like, um, you're kind of an example of like pursuing that art in the, your years behind you. And now you're in a new industry for the years in front of you. Yeah. You love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about really, um, finding that clarity. I think finding that clarity in who you are allows you to make big decisions and pivots um, in an easier way. Because I remember when I was going to transition, I had a lot of, like, I was like, oh my gosh, what are people going to think of me? Like, especially in our day and age, like I was like, I'm such a millennial stereotype. Like I'm an opera singer and now I'm a coach. Like this is so ridiculous. But I was so clear in that this was was really what I needed and wanted to do. And so I, it was honestly like that thing when you, when you know, when you approach people with such confidence about what you're going to do, like they can't even question it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and everyone was like, yeah, that's, that's what Sharin's going to do. However, like when I did do that transition, it was, it was pretty slow. I was still, you know, singing, um, kind of mostly full time until about two years ago. Wow. So yeah, so it was a very slow transition and I still do singing gigs here and there because I really enjoy it. I love it. Um, but yeah, now I get to do a, another thing that I really, really love. So yeah. See all the gray people. There's so much gray. And I, and it's funny because you're like, yeah, I still do singing gigs sometimes because I love it. I love it. And, and I think that's another thing if there's artists listening. I think something else that's really a total lie that we're told as artists is like, if you are interested, if you're doing another job or have a side hustle or have a, like a, you know, you're a VA or you're a this or a that, like you're not a real artist. And I'm like, 
fuck that. Absolutely like, fuck that. Right. But you just hear that so often like, oh, you're not doing this full time. You're not getting paid. And I'm like, no, you know what? Like I'm a – and I think if anything during this pandemic year, that's really taught us that if you can have lots of interests and lots of skills and lots of talents – that's really beneficial. That's really beneficial. Massive. And I don't know if it's like a Western thing or if it's like a like a hyper-capitalism environment thing of like having one thing. But I know I grew up that way. And when I started college, I was like, I'm a fitness development major. Like I was a minor in musical theater, but I couldn't even mm. give any love to that because I was like – I, I, I like if I give love to this, it's taking from this. Anyway, I went away to school in Germany for a, a little while and my RA, it was a German sport university. And if you studied there, you had the opportunity to, to split your studies between the GSU and another university. He also studied divinity like religion at another oh university and he was a rapper like we would literally go to his rap battles at like clubs and stuff so he's like doing you know like leading scientific studies at the GSU for whatever kinesio or like body movement related stuff and then he's studying divinity in his other other credit hours and then in his off time he's like just rapping I love it. And I love it. I was 20 when I went there. And I, when I say my mind was blown, like I felt free of like so yeah. many social constructs of like having to identify as like just a singer or just a, just a fitness person or stuff like that. And it's so sad how we box ourselves like that. It really is. Yeah. And we really need to normalize that and allow for that curiosity to bloom because you just honestly don't know what's going to come of things. And I, and I always say like, we never know the meaning of anything. Like mm. you don't know, like you, you start doing something and you think the outcome is going to be one thing. And then you look back on life and you're like, Oh, that's like not where I thought that story was going, but that's where it went. And so yeah. if we really become, I, I, you know, I, one of the things I also teach and teach is um, manifestation. And I mm. think sometimes we can manifest our ways into lives that we're not supposed to live. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you can, you can will your way into that life. And so I think it really, it really helps to have this wide lens and this curiosity when it comes to like your life. Cause yeah. you know, you don't know where those things are going to lead you. Yeah, totally. And even like letting, being able to let go or being able to flow of like the identity that you hold on to, like allows for that, you know, like maybe you identified as being into like math and being into like, you know, very like one side of the brain, but here you are, you love painting, like painting makes you feel so good. And it's like, if it makes you feel good, that's something I've been thinking a lot about actually, not just things that make me feel good, but also people that make me feel good. Mm. Like even if I'm around someone or I'm on a date or I'm talking with someone and, and they're not saying anything that's like particularly concerning, but I don't feel nice around them. Yeah. I'm like, I, I'm not going to continue keeping them close to me. Like there's just right. no reason. And uh, there's the obvious exception of like people having their off days, of course, but I mean like the root chemistry between you yeah. and anything. Yes, yes, 100%. A, a medium or a person. Um, should we cut into like a little bit of BIPOC experience? Yeah, 100%. Yes, yes, yes. So speaking of healing, did you find that you had to do healing around that and particularly – so you identify as a non-practicing Muslim or how – I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, so my family – I was born in Iran and my family is Muslim. Um but, you know, after the revolution in Iran, which was like an Islamic revolution, I think there was like a certain 
group of like the population in Iran that was really kind of like, didn't, because the Islamic revolution had caused such turmoil and upheaval and like sadness in people's lives, I think it turned a lot of people off from Islam. And so I think certainly in my family, my parents were never really practicing, but then Mm -hmm. after that they were like, yeah, we're Muslim, but like, we don't really Muslim. Like we don't do Muslim things, you know? <laughs> and and we have lots of respect for it. And we certainly have family members, uh, like my my grandma would pray, um, you know, and uh, but we didn't. And so, but we you know we we immigrated to Canada when I was four mm-hmm. to a very white town, mm. to a very white city. And my parents uh they actually they're the Iranian population there is is one of the biggest now, um, but they took us to a uh, part of the city that did not have any Iranians. And for my parents, I think that was really a conscious decision. Um, one, some of our closest friends lived there, but two, I think they really wanted us to have a full experience of being like in Canada, um, but also Iranian. Like we spoke Farsi in our household. My mom was like, I mean, now looking back as an adult, I'm like, I don't know how she did that, but she would make us feel just as excited for our Iranian celebrations than for like the them westernized ones. Like wow. we love Christmas and then we love uh, celebrating Noruz, which is the Iranian New Year. And so they did a really great job of that. However, like it was me, my sister and my best friend that were like, and there was a handful of brown kids at our school. And so navigating that, as you know, super hard because I think you know, um, first you have like the immigrant experience, which is traumatic, right? We also came over totally, totally traumatic. Um, we also came over because of a revolution and a war. So then we have add on to that PTSD from all sides, but especially my parents and also PTSD wasn't like a thing we talked about then. Right. So like trying to navigate immigrating with PTSD with two young kids under the age of 10, and so you have that. And as an immigrant kid, I think you're carrying this weight of trying to, you know, be at least for me, um, be a source of pride for my family. Like they made all these sacrifices to come over here. Um, and also then going into these environments where you're not the same. And so you want to somehow feel valued and seen. And so then you start doing things like, so for some of us, we become perfectionists and some of us become hard workers or people pleasers, or some of us just say, screw it all. And like, just, you know, like then become on the other side of the spectrum. And so it's this unfortunate thing where I feel like you're not allowed to, or not given the grace or the privilege to get curious about your identity, you know, like just really play around with it and like, be like, well, how am I? And who am I? Like, as it, I think as an immigrant kid or a kid that is from a historically marginalized community, you don't have that privilege. Like you just have to figure out how to be safe. Yeah, You have to figure out how to be valued. Cause I think all of us want to feel valued. And from that comes all of these things like and then all of a sudden you're a perfectionist and you're a people pleaser or, and you're hard work or you know you ha- or you hide like a lot yes. of that safety like yes for me I I want to tell you this before I forget one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life was actually something you said to me at um Harold and Katie's wedding when you were like I don't know if you like just found out my age or we were talking about 9-11 and I was like yeah I was in first grade which means I was six and you were like oh Aisha you don't know what the world you don't know a world without like that like over the top Islamophobia and I was like wait 
there was a world like that or like what was it like before night like i couldn't even and i and i know that there's always been islamophobia but obviously especially and i grew up in new york like when the twin towers hit like i was signed out of school like i was it was our backyard you know but um anyway no one's ever shined light or brought to my attention that like how hard it was you know and like my name is aisha and it's like i'm white passing but every time they're like what's your name it, they're like oh it's arabic like it it's it's always brought to the surface very soon after and i remember my mom this was when i was in 6th grade so this is 5 years later my mom was begging me to change my legal name she was like no one's going to give you jobs like my middle name is deniz which means ocean in turkish but it could be kind of like denise and my mom was like why don't we put your middle name to your first name and i was like I mean, I fought, I don't know what came over me as like a 12 year old where I was like, no, I don't want to leave it as it is. And if people don't like me, they don't like me. But I didn't change it. But nonetheless, like I just reflect back on like how much I had to fucking hide, you know, and like my accent is I, I do not even recall this, but somebody who knew me when I was younger told me who was older than much older than me. They're like, oh, you used to have the strongest like Turkish accent. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, you would be like, talk to the hand. Like it was so strong. And I don't even have recollection of that. And I, and I look at my other Turkish friends and I could tell that they are native Turkish speakers because of the way they move, like their lips, their tongue and their teeth. And I don't do that. And I'm like, I wonder if like, I felt so threatened that I like subconsciously simulated to like the highest extent that I could find, you know? Sorry, I have a question for you. No. Did you yeah. did you straighten your hair growing up a lot? I didn't. I think I didn't like my hair is so curly that like it just wasn't even an <laughs> option for me. But I don't know, but like I, I feel like I was like, you know, uh it's just so hard. Like I was like uh, this hairy kid, like hairy like from the t- tip to bottom. Everything's like, hairy. The- yeah, really top hairy. to tush. Everything's hairy here. <laughs> this really hairy kid. Like I was also, yeah, just like brown and like so yeah, no, but the the I could not straighten my hair. That was an option. But like, yeah, a lot of our a lot of our friends' kids either change their names when they and this was even before 9-11. Wow. But just to assimilate, right? Like change their names. Um, you change how you look, you get a nose job, you try to you try to fit in as much as you can. And again, I don't think you understand it as trying to fit in. You just, you just want to be like everyone else. And and that's the ideal of beauty. And so you're just doing those things, but it's like also an erasure of who you actually are. And reclaiming that is such a powerful thing, but it's also like a very, it's a process that there's like grief there. Right. Cause it's like, you missed out on so much and there's shame and there's like, it's, it's an intense, intense process. And yes, 9-11 made it incredibly difficult for, for Muslim kids, Muslim families, just Muslims in general. And ever since then, like it's, it has been like a, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to be a Muslim. I remember one time I have like a, um, a necklace I wear and it's my name, Shirin in Farsi mm-hmm. and which is Arabic, right? Cause we use the Arabic language. And I remember like it was after 9-11 and I used to wear it all the time. And my, I was going to the airport and my friend was like, wow, that's a statement. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're going to wear a necklace with Arabic on it to the airport. I was like, fuck you. I'm going to wear this like even more now. Check it out. Check it out. But yeah, it's just, I mean, 
Yes. Yes. Very, very about post 9-11 being Muslim is, is, um, and you and I are people who are like, you wouldn't guess we're Muslim. Yeah. Right? I'm sure you get that all the time. People are like, huh, you're Muslim. And for me, actually, I do always, like, I always say like, I'm Muslim Iranian. Cause I do want that. Like the, that this is what a Muslim person also looks like. Like we come in many different shapes and forms and sizes and uh, we think many different things, you know? That's another thing you did for me with leading by example. I remember when we were at the wedding, you know, it was like a weekend, but it was like we spent like everyone that whole weekend together. So I feel like there were so many exchanges looking back and you were like, yeah, I still tell people I'm Muslim, but I tell them I'm non-practicing just to show that there are like others of us. And I was like, I'm going to do that too. Because mm-hmm. I basically like, I went from like, I was really practicing when I was younger and looking back, mm-hmm. it was definitely just like so much trauma of like my parents' divorce and moving and like me, my mom, my sister, we had to move into a basement. Like it just so much happened. And I would go to like Quran on the weekends. So it was like a, 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 safe place for me and like community and stuff. So I used to really practice. And then as I started growing up in my enlightenment journey, I kind of was like, "Mm, I don't really like this. Like, I also really like girls, like, and boy, like, you know what I mean? Like, I just like started stepping away from organized religion. So I would just say that I wasn't Muslim, but that didn't feel right either. Cause it was so, it's still so embedded in us. Yeah. Or, or for me, I don't want to speak for you, but, and then when you said that, I was like, I love that. I want to do that too. And just show people that it's a spectrum. It doesn't mean everyone's wearing burqas or it doesn't mean that, you know, everyone prays five times a day and on, you know? Yeah, no. Cause I think it's, I mean, again, like, even though we don't practice, I think, um, it, there's a lot of cultural stuff that's still rooted in Islam yes. and, and being Muslim. Right. So, and again, I'm like, if, if Christian people, if Jewish people can claim, their religion, but they don't practice, then why shouldn't I and can't I, right? Um, But again, I think it's like taboo to be Muslim. And so like, why would you claim that? And I'm like, but that's what I am, right? That's what I am. Yeah. Did you, do you feel like you've processed a lot of that uh, trauma of immigration or just like BIPOC trauma of when you were younger? I mean, I've like processed it and stuff comes up and, but like, you know, that's, that is, um, it's part of who I am. It's a fabric of who I am and, and not in a bad way. I think our traumas also become the fertile ground for like some of the greatest growth. And like a lot of the the work that I do is because of the trauma I experienced. Um, And so I think it's a constant practice and I'm sure just like you, there's like moments in life where things are brought up again and you're like, ah, but I thought I like healed this or I like whatever. Um, And you know, especially during this pandemic year for, for like me, um, safety is like a really big core value. And like, there was such a lack of safety and I could, you know, when you're feeling like they say that, that, um, that phrase, like what's hysterical is historical. Mm. And like, just having these moments of like anxiety and like Raj, my husband would just be like, she's like, you're not yourself right now. And I was like, Oh my God, no, I'm not. Because like, I was really caught up in my trauma and like, that's okay. We can have grace and space. And, but, but like, it's impossible to think that those things aren't going to revisit us. Oh, totally. Totally. I identify with what you said to such an umph degree to the, to the point where now I can feel if I'm like upset by something or if I'm full blown trauma responding, I'm like, like what you said of that lack of safety, 
your brain probably kicked into a mode of like, hey, are we going to be alive tomorrow? Are we going to be alive in an hour? Like, is our survival actually going to be jeopardized? I asked about the processing because I had um, resistance to going to therapy for so long because I was like, how the fuck am I going to talk to? And like, no shade, but this is really how I feel. Like, how am I going to talk to a white woman about this? Because I have to not only grieve all the shit, but I always find myself explaining myself. So I haven't actually, to this day, hashed up so much BIPOC stuff. That's why I asked you. I didn't know if you've ever, if you found like a space. I, I mean, I think now we have like in our older lives of just like being able to talk about these things with other fo- people of color, but I still haven't spoken about so many of the things that went on in like elementary school and things like that to this day. Oh my God. I mean, you, I, you, I know you. And so I know you have that self-awareness, um, but really having a, a therapist or like a, just someone to, to unpack this stuff with has been really helpful. But I know what you mean when there's like, you're in a space with a white person and you're like, I have to explain myself. But then also sometimes I feel like the answers they give you are so culturally insensitive that they're not really, you know, like it's like, you know, as a Brown person, like I could never not be connected to my family. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just not an option to be like, create boundaries like this and like, don't do this. And that. I'm like, no, like I have a fucking Iranian dad. Like I'm going it's home different. for the holidays, it's you know, yeah. it's different. Um, So how to navigate that. A really great account that I love on Instagram um, is Brown Girl Therapy. She's wonderful. You should check her out. But I know exactly what you mean. And that's one of the big things that I wanted to do in the coaching space was to offer that, that you know, safe space to like unpack as a person of color. Because, yeah, you don't want to explain yourself when you're going through a trauma. Yes, that's a big one. And for anyone listening, I just want to validate that because for so long I felt like an asshole because I didn't want to explain where in reality I was so tired. I just was tired, like just physically, mentally tired. Anyway, I can speak to you forever. Um, I know. I'm like, I'm like, let's, we have to cut it short, but I like, I could talk to you forever and ever. We need like a part two, Aisha. Oh, I'm so down. Are you crazy? You're down. I'm down. Um, Where can the listeners find you? Uh, You can find me on Instagram at wholehearted coaching. I also have my own podcast, wholehearted coaching, the podcast, and you can go to my website, wholehearted-coaching.com. I cannot recommend Sharon enough. And anyone who knows me knows like I can't talk about anything unless like the integrity is there. Like I just, I cannot, I'm so lucky to have met you because you've been proof of concept for me. Thank you so much. That means so, so much to me. Thank you, Aisha. I'm just, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You're an incredible human. And I'm just really honored to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you.